The word idi, I-D-D-H-I, is from the Pali language, and it means the power of something, or the particular capability, or the potential of something, or the fulfillment or completion of a situation. So, for example, we could say that the idi of birds is their ability to fly. Or the idi of an artist is the fulfillment of their creative talent. So it's the power, the fulfillment, the completion. It also refers to what in the Buddhist literature are called the supernormal powers or abhinyas. And there are lots of stories, both in the texts and stories of yogis up to modern times, who through their practice have developed these supernormal powers. You know, when we hear the stories of people flying through the air or walking on water or creating multiple bodies, you know, emanation bodies, reading other people's minds, There's a nice story of, from the time of the Buddha of his, uh, his aunt who raised him and also was responsible for uh, helping to establish the order of nuns, bhikkhunis. She quickly became fully enlightened with all the psychic powers. <clears throat> and she lived to a very old age. She lived to 120 years old. It said that just before she died, and she knew she was about to die, so she came to pay her last respects to the Buddha. And they were with a big assembly of people, of monks and nuns and lay people. And so the Buddha asked her, since she was about to pass away, to demonstrate her psychic powers, to instill confidence you know, in people. And so in the text, it describes how before I describe what, just hold the image, or have the this 120-year-old little old lady. <laughs> I mean, that's the part that really is striking to me. <laughs> you know, this old, old woman flies up into the air and dives into the earth and creates all these bodies, and she does, you know, this, this miraculous display of powers of mind, of this level of itty. And then she finally finishes and she goes back to the Buddha and says, okay, is this enough already? And the Buddha says, yeah, that's fine. (laughs) She passed away. So these powers are there. They are a potential of the mind. And there are yogis today who have these powers. But the Buddha also saw the danger of them, that they are not wisdom, they're not enlightenment. They are potential in the mind, We have that potential, that possibility of power, but it really doesn't have to do with purification. When asked about miracles, the Buddha said that the true miracle was the awakening of understanding in someone's mind. But that really is the miracle, coming out of ignorance. So it's helpful, I think, to sometimes look into or reflect upon our own motivation for practice. What is it that's inspiring us, you know, from within to do this? Is it for some worldly idi? You know, we want to, in some way, become a better person in the world or develop some capability in the world. Is it for some you know, special powers that we're going to get. Early on in my career, my yogi career, I was doing some metta meditation as a concentration technique. And I knew that all these psychic powers came from samadhi practice. And so I'd be sitting doing the metta, presumably doing the metta, but really what my mind was doing was fantasizing of all these powers and what I was going to do with them. You know, and I was going to fly in through my friend's windows and (laughs) play the stock market. 
needless to say, it didn't help my practice very much. Or are we practicing really for something greater than all this? Are we practicing for awakening, for liberation? The Buddha talked of five idies of understanding, five fulfillments of understanding, which really are the completion of his whole teaching. The first of them is called the idi of the special knowledge of the Dharma. What this means, the special knowledge of the Dharma, it means our ability to discern all the constituent elements of experience, all the elements which, in combination, constitute what we call self, what we call I. So this special special knowledge of the Dharma is what takes us past that concept. What is it that we call I? What is it that we call self? When we look, which is the whole purpose of a retreat. When we pay attention, we begin to see that what we call self is a combination of different mental physical elements. The physical elements are quite tangible. They're easy to observe. You know, what comes through the sense doors, the breath, sensations, movement, we can begin to see that quite easily. Our task is to begin to experience them free of concepts about them. We talked a lot about this last week. To be with a sensation free of the concept, leg or back or body. When we hear a sound free of the concept, radiator, truck, car, whatever, and be just with the bare experience of hearing. So there are all these physical elements which constitute experience, and then there are a whole constellation of mental events. Thoughts, emotions, memories, images, different moods. And most subtle of all, is the mental event of consciousness itself, that which knows. So we put all of these together, the physical elements, the mental elements, including consciousness. We put it all together, it looks a certain way, and that appearance is what we're calling I. That appearance is what we call self. The Buddha once gave a very short, succinct discourse, sutta, on the all. And only the Buddha could do this. He described the all. He described the totality in six phrases. There's the eye, visible objects, and the knowing of them. The ear, sounds, and the knowing. The tongue, taste, and knowing. Nose, (laughs) smells, and the knowing body sensations and the knowing of them, mind objects, thoughts, emotions, and the knowing of them. Is there anybody here who experiences something else? I mean, it's quite astounding, isn't it, that here our stories about the world and about ourselves are so elaborate. And the dramas that we live in and the suffering that's caused because of these stories, these elaborations, are so immense. And yet when we really just pay attention, what is happening moment after moment after moment, it's just this play of six six objects and the knowing of them. What we are is this changing process of phenomena. It's empty phenomena rolling on. The great discovery in practice is that there's no one behind it to whom it's happening. Visible objects in the knowing, sounds in the knowing, smells in the knowing, 
sensations and the knowing of them, mind objects and the knowing of them. Can we rest in the experience of just what there is? So beginning to discriminate or to see clearly the physical elements of experience, the mental elements of experience, this is called insight into nama rupa. Nama is mental, rupa is physical in Pali. So this insight into nama rupa is essential because it's that insight which begins to free us from attachment to this notion that there is some unchanging being at the heart of things. We begin to get a real sense of what is meant in the Buddhist terminology by the word emptiness. doesn't mean that nothing's there. It means that everything is insubstantial and not referring back to anyone. So when we're mindful, when mindfulness is present, we see this flow of nama-rupa, of mental, physical elements. We see the times when we're identifying with either experience or the knowing of the experience. We can identify with either and create the self in that moment. And we see those moments when there's freedom in the mind from any identification, when there's just this flow of empty phenomena rolling on. So this is the first idi of understanding. It's the special knowledge of the Dharma. This understanding of nama-rupa, that what we call self is a combination of these mental-physical elements. And this is what our practice is about, really seeing that. The second idi, or fulfillment of the teachings... is the understanding of the truth of suffering. And we've talked a lot about it and will continue to. It's the first noble truth of dukkha. It's the understanding of the unsatisfying nature of all conditioned phenomena. But there's nothing within the realm of conditioned phenomena, which is everything, which is everything that we experience, which can ultimately satisfy us. And we experience this dukkha, not theoretically, we experience it very directly in different ways. Sometimes it's just (laughs) the direct experience of pain, painful things, painful sensations in the body, painful emotions. That's clear that it's dukkha. But we also experience the unsatisfying nature not only through painful situations, but by an increasingly refined awareness of the momentariness of phenomena. Because we see that there is nothing reliable. There is nothing to rely on. And we see that whenever we identify with any arising phenomena, which we do a lot. I mean, how many times in the course of a sitting or walking in the day, how many times are we caught up, are we lost, even if it's just for a moment or two, and often it's longer? We see that in that process of continual the continual habit of identification with what's going on, there's no rest. There's no peace in that. It's like we become imprisoned by phenomena through our identification. So that's the second way we experience dukkha. Just seeing the momentariness, understanding the unreliability seeing the non-rest of this continual identification. There's a third way we experience dukkha. This is called sankhara dukkha.
I have a theory about this. <laughs> and it's an equation of the first noble truth with the second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> I really don't know much about the second law of thermodynamics. In fact, almost nothing. But <laughs> how I understand it anyway is the law in physics that everything tends to disorder. If you leave a system alone, it will become disordered. So I hope that's not too off. But I really had this this great insight living in my house and watching how not doing anything, it gets dirty. <laughs> and it's kind of this marvel to me. <laughs> and yeah, that's just, that's like the second law of thermodynamics. It just left to, left to itself, it's going to get disordered. And I, well, that's the first noble truth. That's sankara dukkha. That it takes energy. It takes a continual input of energy to keep things clean, to keep things neat, to keep things ordered, to keep things going. That's one, that's one of the meanings of Sankara Dukkha, that it's this continual input of energy that's needed into the system. You won't find this in the suttas. This is <laughs> but I think there's some relevance there. One of the things that I think is important to realize about our own efforts in practice is that it takes courage to open to this idi of understanding, this completion of understanding of the truth of suffering. It really does take courage. It's not what people commonly do is open to the suffering that there is. Mostly we're conditioned to avoid it, you know, to pull away from it or to deny it. I think realizing this can actually be a source of great strength and great self-respect. I mean, it's quite an amazing thing that you're doing here, you know, for these three months, because it really is all about the willingness to see, the willingness to look what is really going on? What is the truth of the experience in each moment? Free of concepts, free of ideas, free of beliefs, what really is going on? It's a tremendously important thing to do because it's only when we develop this idi of understanding, the truth of suffering, that we stop being so driven to collect more impermanent conditioned states of happiness, what we think will be happiness. Because we have seen for ourselves, not as some theory, we have seen over and over again, that's just another passing state. We also need to bring this idi of understanding into the meditation practice itself because there are many meditative states which are exceedingly desirable. There are times in the practice when it gets really peaceful or still or calm or rapturous actually a kind of happiness much greater than anything we've experienced in the world. And what I so love about the teachings and about the Buddha, all of these states, all of these wonderful meditative states, he called corruptions of insight. <laughs> yeah, here we are, struggling away to kind of finally get some ease and peace. But he doesn't let us rest there, because he sees that those, too, are conditioned states.
the whole teaching is about not settling for anything less than freedom. And we see from the very beginning of our practice all the way to the end that our freedom lies in a true relationship to phenomena. It's not about the phenomena itself. We're not about collecting certain experiences. Because whatever they are, even the very wonderful, meditative, happy states, are still changing and impermanent and unreliable. That our freedom is in the relationship, the true relationship, to whatever it is that's happening. The mind that's free of greed in a moment, free of hatred, free of delusion. Now, the great gift of this, we don't have to wait for that to happen. That's always available in any moment. In any moment of awareness, of real mindfulness, regardless of what our experience is. It's blissful, fine. It's suffering, fine. It doesn't matter. Can we relate to it with a mind that's free of grasping, free of aversion, free of identification? Right there. We really taste what's possible. Okay, so this is the second nitty. The first is the special knowledge of the Dharma, the understanding of the constituent elements of mind and body, nama-rupa. The second idea of understanding is this real willingness, the courage to understand dukkha, to understand the unsatisfying nature of conditioned phenomena. The third idea of understanding is the realization or the wisdom about the causes of suffering. What is it that causes suffering in ourselves and in the world? And it's really clear. When we stop to look, we see that what causes suffering are what in Pali are called the kalesas, or afflictive emotions. And it's not that these states of mind, of the kalesas, it's not that they make us bad people. Rather, they make us suffer. They are the cause of suffering. And there are different levels of these kalesas. One level, one of the Burmese monks, he translated it as those kalesas which cause outrageous behavior. Just behavior that so obviously is suffering. What's quite amazing is you can read any newspaper and basically it's a catalog of outrageous behavior. And a couple of years ago, there was one in particular, but this is just, there are many, countless ones. There was the mother, this was a famous case, so you may be familiar with it. There was the mother of a cheerleader who killed the mother of her daughter's rival so that her daughter would get on the cheerleader squad. (laughs) It's really hard to imagine what was going on in that person's mind. But what is really startling is that this is not an isolated event. The world is filled with people acting out. What are they acting out? They're acting out the kalesis you know, extreme anger or fear or rage or whatever, because there has been no understanding. There's been no development of awareness. In developing this idi, that is, the understanding of the causes of suffering, great emphasis has been placed on the weakening and uprooting of one particular kalesa, which is considered to be, in some way, the root or the most dangerous of all the others. And that is the kalesa 
the misconception of the view of self, of I, of some permanent soul-like entity. That's who we are. And if you pay attention, if you investigate, you will see that so many, if not all, of the actions which cause suffering to ourselves and other people have their root in this belief. This belief in the I, the separate, permanent self. Because when that's strong, it has to be defended. It has to be protected. It has to be aggrandized. It has to be satisfied. All of these actions, all of the acting out of the galaxies are coming from this fundamental misconception. Through this very simple practice of noticing, of noting, of being aware, we begin to free ourselves from this misconception, misperception. Because we see that what we're calling self is just this flow of empty phenomena. But there is no one behind it. And it's a tremendous relief. Because then we're no longer driven to act so much by the forces of addiction or the forces of aversion. We see it all as just this, this play of phenomena. It's tremendously liberating. The free mind is one which doesn't identify with anything at all. It leaves everything in its own place. We don't add to anything this notion, this is me, this is I, this is self. Everything still comes and goes. The same thoughts and feelings and emotions and interactions. But we're not solidifying. We're not contracting into it. We're not imprisoning ourselves. I'd like to read part of a poem from a 14th century samurai. And it's so wonderful because it just points to the timelessness and the universality of the Dharma. It's what he, I have no parents. I make the heaven and earth my parents. I have no home. I make awareness my home. I have no life or death. I make the tides of breathing my life and death. I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. I have no friends. I make my mind my friend. I have no enemy. I make carelessness my enemy. I have no castle. I make immovable mind my castle. I have no sword. I make absence of self my sword. I have no sword. I make absence of self my sword. Okay, the first idea of understanding is the special knowledge of the Dharma, understanding Nama Rupa, mind and body. Second idea is understanding suffering, opening to suffering, seeing it. The third idea is understanding the causes of suffering, which are the afflictive emotions, the kalesas. Misperception of self. The fourth idi, or completion, or fulfillment of the Buddhist teachings, is the realization of the end of suffering. You know, the putting down the burden. 
And we have different experiences of this in practice. It's not something that's just some far-off goal. We actually can have many moments of a taste of it. One way that we can experience right here and now is when we notice when the mind frees itself from a kalesa. So, for example, the next time you are feeling some strong desire or fear or anger or whatever, whatever your particular favorite kalesa is, notice, see if you can notice even if you become aware of it after it's already quite happening and strong. So you pick it up that it's there, and then see if you can stay with it. And notice carefully that moment of transition where it goes from being there to not being there. Anger, 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 and you're really caught. Anger, anger, anger. And then at a certain moment, it's not going to be there. Pay attention to the quality of the mind in that moment. If you can catch that transition, it will become very clear the difference. And it feels like, in that moment, when the anger is no longer there, it, it really feels like we're being let out of the grip of something. And it could be something pleasant as well as unpleasant. You know, maybe there's some pleasant fantasy, pleasant desire that we're we're really lost and watch the moment when it's gone. And you can feel that sense of openness, of spaciousness, of clarity, of freedom. Don't ignore those moments because they're showing us something very important. You can see it every time the mind is released from being lost in a thought. It's very much like coming out of a movie theater. You know, you come out, oh yeah, here I am. I'm not you know, in 18th century France or wherever. <laughs> it, it's really like waking up to where we really are. That's the practice of the Dharma. That's what Buddha means. It means awake. We can be awake. There's another taste of freedom. One of the stages in practice is called the stage of equanimity, where the mind is just very profoundly equanimous. It's not moving in response. It's not reactive to any phenomena at all. Whatever is arising, it's like mind has this mirror-like wisdom. It's simply reflecting or aware of whatever is arising without any reaction at all. This is said to be the mind of an arhant, the mind of a fully enlightened being. We can experience that even before we become arhants. So we get a real taste of it, a sense, oh yeah. And the third way we can come to the end of suffering is really in coming to the end or experiencing the end of all conditioned phenomena. It's really coming to zero. Becoming zero. Zero is a very powerful number. Zero doesn't add anything at all. And yet it transforms everything. This coming to zero is coming out of the somethingness of self, the somethingness of I. Now from this deep understanding of emptiness, we come into a very profound relationship and connectedness with everything. Often people have the idea that connectedness depends on a special relationship. And so we go looking in our lives 
or the one relationship that's going to make us feel connected, or the one community that's going to make us feel connected. It's the wrong approach. Because what makes us feel connected is the lack of separation. When there's a lack of separate self, then the very expression of that experience is relationship. There's relationship with everything, with the breath, with the sound, with people. There's a writer by the name of Wei Wu Wei. He's actually English. I think he lived in Hong Kong. And he wrote many wonderful books. Just in this regard, he expressed something with great pith. He said, true humility is the absence of anyone to be proud. True humility, it's not a stance. It's not, I'm really humble. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a stance. It's not a thing. It's, it's an absence. The absence of anyone to be proud. The absence of any one to be separate is relationship, is connectedness. Okay, the fifth idea of understanding is that of the path to awakening, fulfilling the path. And we've talked about in many different contexts the Eightfold Path, or understanding it as Sila, Samadhi, Panya, morality, concentration, wisdom. What is important to remember is that the entire Eightfold Path is contained in every moment of awareness. That's quite amazing. Every moment of awareness contains the whole path. And so, the fulfillment of this idi, the fulfillment of the spiritual path, rests right here in this moment. These are the five fulfillments of the Buddha's teaching. And they're summed up in a phrase that you find in many of the songs of enlightenment, which are the songs of uh, the nuns and the monks, and they're collected in in a couple of volumes now. Uh, Songs these women and men sung at the moment of their enlightenment, the moment of their awakening. And one of the phrases that repeats throughout many of them, and which inspires me a lot in the practice, done is what had to be done. I think, that will be a wonderful day. (laughs) Done is what had to be done. We have accomplished what needed to be accomplished. So the question, I think, a deep question for each one of us is, can we do this? Can we do what needs to be done? Again, the teachings provide such a wealth of support. And that's one of the meanings of Dharma. One of the meanings of the word is support. The Buddha went on to describe four four qualities of mind, or four personality traits that are the basis for success. He called them the roads to success or the roads to power. And really it's about four different aspects of personality. When we know what these four are, we can really recognize what our own particular strength is and then work from a place of strength work to develop the path. Now, sometimes people 
sort of view Dharma practice or the Buddhist teachings as this kind of passionless arena of life. And it's amazing because it is exactly the opposite. And each of these four, they're called idipadas, which is the path to the idis, the path to understanding, the path to realization. Each one of these is an, ex- is an expression of an intense passion. And that's what's required in our practice, that kind of commitment. This, before I briefly go through these four strengths we can draw on, I want to read something from Goethe. It says, Until one is committed, there is hesitancy, the chance to draw back, always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans. That the moment one definitely commits oneself, then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and meetings and material assistance, which no one could have dreamed would have come their way. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius power and magic in it. That's the fire we need in our practice. We can do it. We can come to that place where we can say done is what had to be done. But we need to do it with a certain boldness, with a certain confidence, with a certain commitment. Okay, so what are these four personality strengths And each one of us has at least one of them, I hope. (laughs) So listen carefully for which one is yours, because that's going to be your path. That's going to be the source of your energy. The first of these, it's called, or it's the quality of zeal or ardency, or the strong desire to do something to accomplish something. At the heart of this, at the heart of this feeling of ardency or zeal is the feeling, once we have set our mind on something, that nothing will obstruct us. We have a clear sense of where we want to go and this unwavering sense of purpose. I can do this. I can accomplish this. Sometimes, you know, I get particularly inspired um, by this trait, sometimes in watching uh, the Olympics. Because you see these people who really have brought to a level of perfection some, some particular skill. And you think of the hours and hours and hours of training. It didn't just happen. It happened because each one of them had this strong the strong sense of purpose. And that motivated their hours of training. Can we do that for awakening, for enlightenment? The second road to success is virya. And virya is sometimes translated as effort, but effort in English has some connotation of efforting, and it's not that. Virya means strength. It means that sense of advancing rather than retreating, rather than going back. The person who has strong virya, and it's really a courage of the heart, has the thought or is motivated by the thought, whatever can be accomplished by effort, I can do that. Whatever can be accomplished by human endeavor, I can do that. It's a very powerful force in somebody's life. You know, we've spoken about Deepama, the wonderful teacher we had. She had tremendous virya. And she was this tiny woman. 
who had been very sickly. She was she was basically bedridden for five years. She was, when she became committed to the practice, she was still very sick. She would crawl up the steps to the meditation hall. She couldn't walk up the steps. She would be crawling to the hall to sit. I mean, how many of us would be willing to do that? It's just, it's amazing. And, and her practice flowered because of it. She was this amazing yogi. One time, the last time I saw her, actually, before she died, she looked at me and she said, you know, you should sit for two days. And she didn't mean a two-day retreat. She meant I should do a two-day sitting. And I just left. (laughs) I mean, it just seemed so beyond what I could ever do. And she just looked at me and she said, don't be lazy. (laughs) Her domain of virya was enormous. She went sat for four days. I mean, she was in this state of samadhi four days without, without moving, without getting up. So, amazing. And this is a human mind, just like ours. Not just like ours, but... <laughs> <laughs> potentially just like ours. <laughs> okay, the, the, the Bodhisattva, before he was enlightened, he exemplified this, this quality of virya. And he made this resolution. And these, these are his words said... If the end is attainable by human effort, I shall not relax until it is attained. Let only my skin and sinews and bones remain. Let my flesh and blood dry up. I will not stop the course of my effort until I win that which may be won by human ability, human effort, human exertion. So we can get a sense of the tremendous power that comes from this from this personality strength, this characteristic, somebody who's very strong in virya. There's a third road to success, to fulfillment. And that's the strength of mind which comes from love of the Dhamma. Where we become absorbed in the practice, absorbed in the teachings out of this tremendous love for the truth. Now, it's a mind which is always inclining in one's life. It's always inclining one's to the Dharma, inclining one's to the practice. It's like how we are, you know, in the, in the first week of being in love. You know, how all we can think about is the person we're in love with until we really get to know them a little better. (laughs) But that first week is glorious. (laughs) And it's like the thought of our loved one just fills our mind, it fills our life. This love of the Dharma, if we have that kind of feeling, that becomes a road to fulfillment, a road to completion. Where we deeply feel that nothing else is of equal importance. So the first path, or the first quality which brings us to fulfillment is that strong sense of purpose, of zeal, of ardency. The second is the strength of virya, of effort, that that effort or energy or strength that doesn't turn back, that is actually challenged by difficulties instead of daunted by them. The third road or the third strength which leads us to the end is that of love of the Dharma. And the fourth path or road to fulfillment, it really is the strength of a deeply investigative mind. 
philosophical in the highest sense of the word, the, the love of wisdom. You know, that is the mind that is inspired by the deepest desire to understand the most profound aspects of life. It's not satisfied for the conventional understanding of things, which unfortunately so many people settle for. You know, our culture settles for it. If we have this strength of mind of just wanting to know, wanting to know the nature of samsara, wanting to know the nature of suffering, the nature of freedom, this strength of mind, this, this strong investigative factor can also bring us to the end. If we have any one of these four, or even the beginnings of any one of these four, this is what we should develop, this is what we should strengthen. Because these four roads to power, roads to fulfillment, are what will generate the energy of our practice. So we should recognize our own strengths and work from that place of strength. The great challenge for us, the very great challenge, is to hold a vision of freedom, to really hold that vision, to recognize what needs to be done, and to see that the fulfillment of the path is in every moment of awareness. It's not out there, it's right here. It's in the moment you sit and you feel a breath, the moment that you stand up and begin to leave the hall. Every moment of awareness contains the whole path. So can we really be inspired by what is true and work to realize it for ourselves with the very deep understanding that we are not doing this for ourselves alone. Dedicating our efforts, dedicating our understanding, our wisdom to the happiness, the benefit, the awakening of all beings, for all beings everywhere. it for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.